Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. It's Labor Day weekend. I want to address the topic of work and identity, especially as it's illustrated in the book of Philemon. Uh, I guess I've spent most of my life working, much of my life. My earliest job may have been with the Barman Bailey Circus, which used to set up uh, right across the street, and we kids would go over and get jobs at the circus. Um, I worked at, as a carpenter. I worked in mobile home factories. I sold price markers in the state of Kansas. I was a country and western DJ for WMBH, 50,000 watts of country power. Um, I've worked the oil fields in Kansas and Texas. The name of our organization, Faith and I, uh, Maisie, we're part of a group called Forging Plowshares. That idea occurred to me uh, because as a, ch- as a teenager, I worked on a forge uh, one summer. I spent much of the summer learning to work a forge. My father, between my junior and senior year, he took stock of my intellectual and academic abilities, decided I should probably be a horseshoer. And he contacted Kansas State Farriers College, which was a very inflated name. Uh, it was actually run by a guy named Bob Beckdahl. And Bob was, uh, he was the last, uh, army, full-time army horseshoer. At least that was the story he said. Bob was about 400 pounds. And so he could wrestle any horse that uh, he came up against. He was usually bigger than the horse. Um, and so I learned to forge. We not only learned, learned to shoe the horses, but we learned to make the sh- horseshoes. And I'm using all this in a very liberal way because whether I ever learned to make a horseshoe is very questionable. Maybe I would specialize in crippled horses. They would be real deformed to fit the shoes that I was making. Uh, But I graduated from there. I, of course, graduated even. Of course, there was no system in which you were failing horseshoeing school. Uh, And so my dad, after I graduated, he immediately made up a little card he said, Paul Axton Ferrier, any horse, anytime, anywhere. And so I set to shoeing horses and terrorized the area around Great Bend, Kansas, and then Roswell, New Mexico. The slave labor of Onesimus, and I'm going to read here from the beginning of the, the book of Philemon, is a prime example of work gone bad of the fall into futility that is recorded in Genesis. Um, Last week I argued that for Philemon to be true to Paul's gospel, he will have to cease dependence on one sort of economic system and enter the economy of salvation. And what this will mean is he can no longer call Onesimus his slave. And he can no longer be a slave master if they're going to be brothers in Christ. The economy of salvation means that we exit the economy of this world, whatever that might be. 
I believe we're working out our own salvation. It depends upon us primarily being workers of redemption. And so let's read here. Let's listen to the opening of Philemon, reading verses 1 to 6. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I heard of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that your fellowship, the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. Now we've done much of the rest of the book of Philemon and we understand that the way that his faith is going to be made effective concerns specifically his relationship to Onesimus. So what work, what sort of soldiering? He says, you're my fellow worker. He calls Archippus my fellow soldier. What sort of soldiering, what sort of work is Paul talking about? So how we look at work, you know, maybe with horseshoeing and a world dependent on horses, is interdependent on the community it serves. This was the way that economies used to work, that it was a craft economy, that it was a, you know, a, a guild economy. And according to the guild that you belong to, uh, that was the thing that was valued. An entrepreneurial craft is going to value you know, uh, the, the crafts of, of merchants, the art of war in communities of soldiers, athletes, entertainers. Their various guilds are valued according to the purpose of their community. Inadequate visions of the purpose of community inevitably distort what is valued and distort the role of labor. So part of the picture of the fall is that labor would become toilsome. It would become futile. It went from being a co-creative thing. You know, Adam was naming the animals. He was tending the garden to a wearisome sort of slave labor. And so the slave economy, the slave labor economy of the first century is a prime illustration of work gone bad. Onesimus cannot be recognized completely as a brother in Christ or as completely human even if he's owned by Philemon. Work is meant to be redemptive in many ways, redemption work, redeeming work, It's not simply preaching, right? It's not simply teaching witness. The labor itself is going to be a a part of this redemption. Um, It is productive labor in which our humanity is affirmed, in which we are not demeaned, but in which we are valued. And communities that devalue, demean, 
and which do not affirm the humanity of those making a real contribution would perpetuate either slavery or the equivalent of slavery. The problem of a slave economy is that those who contribute the most to the community are valued the least. And of course, I think with the rise of capitalism, we have not escaped this. The guild as a mode of value was undermined by an overarching system which swept away every other form of valuation with something like religion, the power of religion. In fact, I think it is religion, and I'll tell you why here in a minute. As is well recognized, capitalism values artifice over art. The art of the deal is to reap reward without the expenditure of contribution. So that the one who makes an art of dealing, the pure capitalist, makes nothing other than profit. The system is tautologous in that signification of value, you know, money, is just a sign. You know, if I pull out a dollar bill, it's worthless. This is the, the new thing, you know, the economy on uh, the online, the Bitcoin. Bitcoin is literally nothing. Somebody just creates a, an economy. And this nothing, this circulating sign in capitalism is given ultimate value. And so those who do actual physical labor or actually contribute in some way, not just physical labor, but crafts, intellectual labor, many different kinds of labor, in this system are deemed the most worthless and the most expendable. I got to quote some Woody Guthrie here because he captures this best when he's talking about migrant workers. I worked in your orchards of peaches and prunes. I slept on the ground in the light of the moon. On the edge of the city you'll see us and then we'll come with the dust and we'll go with the wind. The most obviously productive labor is like the, you know, the dust blowing in and out. Those who actually may contribute to the well-being of others I believe in the art of living, as we should promote it in the church, are impoverished and devalued. Carpenters, remember Jesus was a carpenter, tent makers, remember Paul was a tent maker, fishermen, remember that the disciples were mainly fishermen. They don't amount to much in a capitalistic economy. These crafts, along with anything tangible, farming, woodworking, They do not count for much, and money counts for everything. There is a consumptive form of work that would consume, that would reduce to nothing through greed, the desire for possession. And money, as the ultimate value, would reduce everything else. Craft, beauty, humanity. And of course, in all of this, we're talking about recognition of the value of the other. That's the problem. Philemon, by treating Onesimus as a slave, does not recognize him, does not recognize his humanity, does, rec- does not recognize that he's a brother in Christ. 
It reduces humanity to a commodity and ultimately to nothing. The system is theological in its implications precisely because it is an outgrowth of theology gone bad. This is Max Weber's. He traces the rise of capitalism producing, by the way, secularism and modern atheism to the notion of Calvinist election and predestination. The elect can no longer know they are saved on the basis of anything else, on the basis of ethics, or on the basis of the sacraments of the church, on the basis of any kind of work. So their election is indicated indirectly. And Calvin will literally say this, that one of the signs of being a part of the elect is your savings account. If God is blessing you, this will show itself in health and wealth. And of course, you turn on the TV, and this is the gospel that you'll hear, but it's not just on the TV, this is the gospel that has been perverted in the church, in many of the churches of this land. And so wealth accumulated is a sign that God is blessing. And capitalism is, in Weber's picture, godlike in its ordering of society because it's the way in which God manifests himself. God is pictured as distant, out there, and the way that we see him is through this indirect kind of sign. And so the successful purveyor of pure greed need not display any particular ethic or any positive quality of character to be God's man. All you have to do is have money. And that's a sign that God is blessing. And of course, that's where it goes uh, bad. But even Pat Robertson this week said that he had a vision in which Donald Trump apparently sits at the right hand of God. And the picture is that value is caving in on itself so that an empty vessel sur surrendered to pure drive embodies the will of God, takes the place of Christ. Unadulterated desire, greed made incarnate, can serve as Messiah in the cult that is the, the religion of, you know, the kind of civil religion of this land. To the degree evangelicalism is implicated and bound up with capitalism, it has continually proven empty. Not just in valuing charisma and numbers over substance, but in the, its incapacity to value people for their full embodied humanity. And obviously this is not simply a problem of Protestantism. All that is new is that this emptiness is now manifest in the national political arena. This confusion at its root begins with the theology a mode of exegesis which would devalue the humanity of Jesus. This, of course, was first century Gnosticism. They're saying, oh, Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. And it would empty the New Testament of its humanity. The name for this, by the way, is just supersessionism. That, that Israel is displaced, you know, Israel, the political cultural political entity of Israel 
is displaced with the church or the understanding of the kingdom, which is otherworldly. And there's a complete division between the Old Testament and the New. And the real world culture of Israel is displaced by a kind of disembodied kingdom. That's Gnosticism, by the way. That's the cult that developed and John and Paul are writing against. And so I've argued if slavery is simply a metaphor for sin and not itself sin, I believe it is sin. That's what Paul is saying. I could command you as an apostle to free Onesimus, but I'm not going to do that. He's saying that that Paul, or Paul is saying to Philemon, if Onesimus is your slave, he can't be your brother. And if he's your brother, he can't be your slave. Slavery is not simply a metaphor for sin. It is a kind of sin. And so too, the slavery of the Jews in Egypt and the exodus of the Jews from the Egypt. That's not simply an allegory. That's not simply, you know, that's often the way it's read as a kind of spiritual allegory in which physical slavery is an illustration of spiritual bondage. It may be that, but it's not simply that. In this understanding, sin does not pertain to the socio-political realm, but has to do primarily with the interior, the psychological part of our humanity. And so redemption has nothing to do with an alternative socio-political reality. That is, should the church have a different economy than the world? Should our value be the same value as the, the world? Should our governance be the same as the world? And of course the idea is, no, the church is an alternative culture. We have an economy of grace. We have a politic of forgiveness. We appreciate, we fully affirm the humanity of others. Jesus' concern with the poor, you know, often is pictured as if Oh, financial poverty has to do only, you know, oh, it's just a metaphor for spiritual poverty. No, Jesus really is concerned with the poor, and we should be too. His picture of the rich man, the impossibility of the rich man entering into heaven. He pictures that, can a camel pass through the eye of a needle? He says that's impossible. In other words, we should get the idea... But there is something wrong with the pursuit of riches and the possession of great wealth. It endangers our eternal soul. The tendency is just to, you know, blunt this. His hard teaching in the Sermon on the Mount about anger, lust, wealth. Many say, oh, well, we can't take that literally. This is maybe just an allegory for, you know, and like Jewish slavery is an allegory. Christ's advice to the rich young ruler, his exhortations to spiritual perfection. Some would say, oh, that's simply a form of irony meant to demonstrate the impossibility of righteousness through works. And so that's part of the demeaning that happens. Those who may actually contribute to the well-being of others in the art of living that I believe we're to cultivate in the church are impoverished and devalued, maybe even most especially in the church. It's not just that Christians treat people poorly, 
Christians imagine they can enslave, impoverish, demean many times and earn the mighty dollar to prove their worth. Another Woody Guthrie song. I'm sorry. This Faith and I, this is one of our favorite songs from Woody Guthrie. Uh, he went to the sick, he went to the poor, and he went to the hungry and the lame. Said that the poor would one day win in this world. And so they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. He went to the preacher, he went to the sheriff, told them all the same. Sell all of your jewelry and give it to the poor. But they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. I guess in all of my life it was in a Christian institution where I was demeaned most severely. And I believe it was partly due to a very bad theology. Which presumes that Jesus didn't really mean what he said. And in fact, maybe it's just highly impractical to concern ourselves with the Sermon on the Mount. This is the Dallas megachurch pastor. Maybe you've heard of him. Robert Jeffress has said that he would not want a candidate for president like Jesus. Because Jesus' lordship and ethics as described in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not pertain to earthly nations. And of course, in this understanding, salvation is primarily private. It's primarily inward. It's mainly having to do with my personal relationship to Jesus. It's not that the outward world, even in this view, is completely irrelevant. Rather, as the enslavement of the Jews in Egypt is a kind of allegory, one's outward life and circumstance is an allegorical reflection of their damned or saved state. But it carries no ultimate meaning in this understanding. And I think that's exactly wrong. That Jesus came to redeem. He came to recreate. And we are part of that redemption. And so I think with this understanding, a kind of bad theology, the labor we do in this world is made futile. In this perverse reading, there really is nothing left of the New Testament, and what remains is more anti-Christian than Christian. In the biblical picture, we enter into the Sabbath work of God to take up the work of redemption, to take up the work of restoring creation. Dell, I think you saw Jason's piece. He wrote a little poem. Uh, Jason Rodenbeck is—he's uh, does our education at Forging Plowshares, and he's a—he does woodworking, but he does poetry and other things. And he, he said this poem—I uh, inspired it, but it's a poem about his woodworking. But of course, it's about our co-creative participation. He cuts and sands these boards, cleaning off the years of broken splinters and the filth that which had been ground into these grains, revealing patterns of color and beauty which had once lived inside of me. I am remade into something new, something beautiful and useful, a chair, a table, a sign proclaiming something precious and fun a birdhouse or feeder or a bed for a beloved friend. I am once a purveyor of junk, then junk itself, now a thing to be cherished, a provider of peace and comfort. 
I am a palette reclaimed, repurposed, restored, reborn. As Christians, we understand the labor of restoration, the embodied freedom given to us in Christ to be artfully lived out. That's the whole point of the gifts of the fruit of the Spirit. You know, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience are worked out in human craft, in the art of living. Now the fact that there are large numbers of Christians that do not read the New Testament in this way, I don't think it lends any weight to the alternative interpretation. It simply shows the perversity of sin still enslaves many who claim to put on the freedom of Christ. They're still toiling under that labor described, you know, of Adam. And here the embodied freedom we are to artfully live out in the body of Christ often has no place and no value. Woody Guthrie again. Jesus Christ was a man who traveled through the land, hard-working man and brave. He said to the rich, Give your goods to the poor, so they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. When Jesus came to town, the working folks around believed what he did say. The bankers and the preachers, they nailed him on a cross, and they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. Poor working people, they followed him around, sung and shouted gay. Cops and the soldiers, they nailed him in the air. And they nailed Jesus Christ in his grave. Well, the people held their breath when they heard about his death. And everybody wondered why. It was the landlord and the soldiers that he hired that nailed Jesus Christ in the sky. When the love of the poor shall one day turn to hate. When the patience of the workers gives way. Would be better for you rich if you had never been born. So they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. This song was written in New York City of rich men, preachers, and slaves. Yes, if Jesus was to preach like he preached in Galilee, they would lay Jesus Christ in his grave. The preachers, the bankers in the time of Christ, and maybe today, I believe are the very ones who would lay Jesus Christ in his grave and indeed are doing so by demeaning others, treating them as expendable, as less than human. The theology by which they negate the gospel may be less important than the fact that people who claim to follow Christ are the very ones who impoverish and despise the very ones he came to save. Now part of this may be an atonement theory based on You know, that has nothing to do with real world redemption. Redemption requires our participation. And as participants in the work of redemption, forging, crafting, artfully living, is our part in creation's groaning redemption, as Paul describes it in Romans chapter 8. A fully formed and embodied theological understanding requires the full range of human capacities, artfully employed in writing, painting, craft, farming, music, poetry, reflective thought, 
Putting on salvation means joining a community of people that, that, that appreciate, that value this sort of contribution. An alternative system of valuation. Value is in con- contribution to meeting all of the embodied, soulish, sensual, spiritual needs. A garden well tended, a farm well run, a piece of wood fashioned into a thing of beauty, perhaps a turn of phrase well crafted. This valuation exposes the worthlessness of the venal charisma given ultimate value in the art of the deal sort of spirituality. Let's sing our hymn of invitation. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.